Sarah and I have been doing our podcast for a couple of months now, but when we first brainstormed on who we wanted to interview, Jody, our friend and former neighbor, was on top of our wish list. We couldn't quite narrow down one topic to talk about with Jody, so we decided to ask her to speak about things that she's passionate about. Intentional living among the poor, working abroad, integrating values of simplicity and generosity in her family life. And Jody has recently been reflecting on the different dimensions of vocation and beautifully describes a divine dance of how our actions and work flow out of contemplation and love. Her sharing really gives reasons to pause and ask ourselves what gives life to our own actions and vocation. Jody assures us that figuring out these answers to these questions is definitely a worthwhile discovery in the midst of motherhood and that finding quietness and solitude may help along the way. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to the Oakland Asian Mom Podcast. Welcome everybody to the next episode of Oakland Asian Mom. And tonight, after a marathon of figuring out some tech issues, we finally are able to introduce our friend Jody, who's joining us on the podcast tonight. Welcome, Jody. Thank you. Great to be here. Yay. We finally made it. And um, we we usually like to ask our guests to introduce themselves uh, by way of their ethnic and cultural roots. And uh-huh. if you could share with us where you grew up and what places you call home, and how would you describe your partner and your kids in terms of their race and identity? Sure. So I grew up, my father's Filipino, my mom is North American. Um, I spent most of my childhood in the Philippines until I was 11. And then we moved to Southern California. Um, and I was there through college and then have moved all over the place since then. Um, home right now feels mostly like the East Bay. This is our third time living here and mm-hmm. I think we're finally staying. Um, I married, uh, my husband is mostly Dutch. Um, and so my kids, we call them not quite white uh, because they're three quarters. <laughs> I've never heard of that, but I like it. <laughs> but they look white. They pass as white. So I think their experience in the world is oh. as a white person. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Talking about your kids, you know, raising mixed kids and being mixed yourself, you know, what are your reflections about how your culture and heritage has impacted you as a person? Mm-hmm. And then how do you think the, your not so white kids? identity has been formed, you know, like consequently, you know? Yeah. For me growing up as a Hapa um, and then growing up like half my years, adolescent years in the Philippines and then the other half here, um, both of my parents and I think especially my dad instilled a lot of pride in us for being Hapa. Um, So when we came to the States, I didn't have the, what I've heard a lot of my immigrants friends experiencing where they felt different. They felt made fun of. I didn't feel any of that. Mm. Um, So mostly grew up in white settings. I lived in Orange County um, and did not have very many people of color around me. 
we never really talked about race back then. And so I wasn't really aware of racial dynamics until I was much older. Um, but then when I look back on my friendships, almost all of my close friends were either people of color or they were mixed. Um, so like my best friend in high school was Japanese, half Japanese, half Spanish. Um, but I never really thought about it in high school. It wasn't until much later. Um, so at home, I would say that my dad's Filipino culture dominated. Um, that might just be because my dad dominated. <laughs> um, but I think what I took from that were the values of, you know, harmonious relationships, mm -hmm. you avoid conflict, you must reciprocate. So if somebody does something for you, you yeah. better write them a card and you will remember them for the next 20 years for the things <laughs> that they did for you. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I, I want to say that, um, you know, my parents are Filipino Yes. and I go, wow, it's really, it's that's, those are the truths that I mean, um, yeah. <laughs> I still write thank you cards. I mean, I mean, I write thank you image like text now or like, you know, pick, take a picture of my kid with their, with their, with their gift and say, thank you, auntie. Uh -huh. It's so ingrained. And yes. I'm like, yeah, okay. Yes. I just, it's just being Filipino. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I realized how much my interaction styles were more Filipino until I married my white husband mm -hmm. um, and realized, wow, his, um, the way he manages conflict is really different than mine. Um I think that's when I realized I'm I'm much more Asian in my uh, in my relationships and the way I relate to people um, than I was you know than I thought of when I was a kid. The other thing I would say growing up, I think you know being mixed has both the positive and the negative. And so for me, uh, the positive was I have lived in a lot of places and some of those places weren't necessarily very safe mm. um, in other countries as well. And so because I'm mixed, people don't really know what I am. And so I don't get the kind of treatment that I might if people knew what I was. They can't mm -hmm. put me in a box. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that protects me. Um, but in other ways, I feel like some of my white friends, because I can relate to them kind of like a white person, they don't really see my Asian side. Um, and I felt this, especially when we lived, we lived in Denver for three years. Um, and I think I only met two Asian Americans in three years. And I realized then that the Asian side of me is really important to me. And when I'm in a place where there are no Asian, no Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. I just feel like that part is really unseen and unknown. And mm. people don't even bring it up. They don't even they're not even aware that that might be a big part of my identity. Um, mm. So yeah, so I feel like I've had some mixed experiences, mixed kid. Um, for my kids, I don't think they personally have uh, experienced being mixed. Um, we lived in South America, well, Central America. We lived in Costa Rica for three years when they were young. They were three and five when we moved there. Oh, um, wow. They were that small. They were young. Yeah. So, but they were always seen as the white kids um, and everybody wanted to learn English. So they always wanted to hang out with our kids. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, most places they've gone, most of their childhood until we moved back to the East Bay, 
they were the minority as white kids because we've chosen to live in neighborhoods that were not white. Um, so I think their experience is probably more as a minority as a white person, which is a little ironic, um, than as a mixed person. Mm. Do yeah. they relate to being Filipino? Not really. Mm. No. We've, they've never been to the Philippines. Um, we haven't spent that much time with my dad. Mm -hmm. So no, not really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have they expressed any curiosity about like, oh, this is definitely mm -hmm. a part of me because it's, it's, it's like one of their grandparents and you were raised there, you know, for until you were 11. Yeah. Yeah. One of my kids has expressed an interest in going to the Philippines mm -hmm. and visiting. Yeah. Um, but no, not so much. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. My, my is really sad. He looks at all of his grandchildren and says, where am I? Uh, I don't see myself in them. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Sometimes I think about if my kids have, you know, white partners who they have kids with, I think uh -huh. I like already think about <laughs> what if they don't look Asian at all? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, you can be the minority, Sarah. Well, actually... <laughs> Jody, for you, it's kind of interesting because your children do pass as white, you know, and yeah. um, that mm -hmm. must have been interesting to parent them um, in in some ways for yeah. you as well. Yeah. 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 So I, it was kind of the reverse experience for my mom um, when we were in the Philippines and my mom is white. People would ask her if I was her daughter. Um then when we were in Costa Rica and our kids look white, oh, but I yeah. could pass as, as mm -hmm. um, people would ask if I was the nanny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Dang, everywhere. Um, it's like you could just be asked if you're the nanny. I had that right. fear a lot. I had that fear in <laughs> Oakland. I'd be like, oh, no. Yeah. I would yeah. go to the park. Um, for some reason, Jordan Park on 35th Avenue. When my son was really small, there's like a lot of Vietnamese nannies there oh, with uh -huh. the white kids. And so yeah. – they would look at me and then they look at the kid and then they I, they go, I go, oh, it's mine. It's mine. It's mine. <laughs> but they would always bring their like really nice lunch. And I'm like, dang, they have really good lunch. <laughs> and I, me and my like little sandwich, you know, my little American sandwich. And I'm like, oh, I want to be with the Vietnamese nannies so I can eat their lunch. Anyways. <laughs> well, Jody, pivoting a little bit, um, one of the things that, I know about you is that living simply and generously is a big value of yours. And mm -hmm. we are curious about how you have lived that out in your family life and mm -hmm. whether there's a challenge to living simply in a place like the Bay Area where there's a lot of wealth and affluence in a lot of yeah. places. Yeah. Um, so I think probably the main way it's been reflected in our lives is in where we've chosen to live. Um, and we've mostly chosen to live in contexts in which our children were around others who had less than us. Um, so that was true you know, in the East Bay. That was true in Boston. That was true in Denver. Um, in Denver, we bought an apartment complex and lived there on site. And most of our neighbors were immigrants 
from Mexico and we also housed refugees. So our kids were the only kids in a 23 unit apartment complex that had their own bedroom. Mm. Um, so I think that was pretty intentional for us. Um, we wanted our kids to know um, that we are pretty wealthy living here mm -hmm. in the US. And I think having their point of reference be kids who had much less made them appreciate what we have. Um, mm -hmm. I think other ways that we did this as a family, um, one of our traditions every Christmas is to choose an organization to give to. Um, so sometimes it's been clean water, sometimes it's been, you know, systemic change in Honduras. Um, but we usually will, you know, when they were younger, show a little video or something to just make them aware of what we were giving to and then have them take turns clicking the button on our credit oh. card payment. <laughs> um, so that's just been our tradition. Um, every year, there was one year our daughter saw the little video about Honduras and we had decided to give 5,000. And after the video, she said, why are we only giving 5,000? We should give 10,000. <laughs> um, so we looked at each other and we're like, hmm, how can you say no to that? So we did, <laughs> we gave 10,000. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of what it is. I think we've also just, you know, as a family, we don't usually spend a lot of money on vacations. We go camping, we go backpacking. Mm -hmm. um, when they were, we'd bring them to the thrift store, a nice thrift store, um, to buy presents for each other for Christmas. Um, <laughs> what else? We don't go out to eat much. That's kind of a big treat for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, so they're very they're very conscientious um, about we've been very conscientious about how we spend our money and now that they're older we're they are also very conscientious about how they mm -hmm. spend their money they're very um, they're not impulsive um, yeah so it's it's beautiful to see that mm -hmm. uh, your question about moving to the Bay Area so the second time that we've been in the Bay Area, um, they have been around other families and kids where there is a lot more wealth. And that has been challenging. Mm. Um, because now instead of them being the ones who seem rich, um, mm -hmm. they are the ones who seem poor. Um, because we're not going on expensive vacations or spending a lot of money on camps, horse camp, art camp. We don't go out to eat every other night. Um, so the comparison point is really different. And I think even though they understand why we don't spend money uh, in the way that, you know, most of our culture does, I think still there's sometimes they wish that we would. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And they don't they don't ever bring it up. But Oh, they do. <laughs> like, this person gets to go to horse camp. I'm like, yeah, that's nice. Uh <laughs> horse camp? I didn't even know there was horse I camp. I know. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, yes, it's gotten harder as they've gotten older and we've yeah. been in wealthier places. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, before you and your partner partnered up, um, was this one of the qualities that you know, uh, you kind of knew about each other that you really mm. wanted to commit to living simply and giving generously. Um, and that's what it kind of, or was it something kind of that kind of yeah. came out of your developing relationship and different becoming parents and having young uh -huh. kids and as they go older? Yeah. yeah. I think what we shared when we met before we got married was we were both, um, really interested in, um, being among the poor. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So we hadn't really articulated um, the giving generously part. I think for me growing up, living simply was the easier thing. Um, you were frugal, you wash all the Ziplocs, um, <laughs> things like that. Oh, I still do that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Um, but there wasn't as much emphasis on we do this so that we can give. Mm -hmm. It was just we do yeah. this to save money and be frugal. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was more when we got married and 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 before we had kids trying to shift the purpose of living simply um, was to really be able to give more generously. And I would say that it probably became even more important to us because my partner um, wrote a curriculum with another friend on um, economic discipleship. So how do we live simply and joyfully in order to give generously? So I mm -hmm. think it, as we, we grew in our, um, yeah, just grew in our own walks in our own journeys that became more and more important to us. And yeah, it's still, still really important to us. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like, maybe easier to do when kids are younger than when they're older. Yes. And yeah. 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 And, and it's also just a reminder of how um, relative things are and how mm -hmm. you are around and what you see and experience has so much of an impact on whether you feel yeah. like you have or don't have resources. Right. So, yep. Yeah. 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 And so, Jody, your children are older. I think one is in high school and one just graduated. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So um, what are some other values? I mean, I'm sure that there's a ton, but mm -hmm. are there some other kind of core values that were important to you um, to pass on to your kids? Um, and how has that, I, I think Cheryl and I are always curious about parents of older kids just to see uh -huh. how like things turn out so yes. <laughs> are there other are there other values that that were important and um how's that going <laughs> yeah yeah um there are other values and sometimes not even ones that I was aware that I had mm -hmm. um like you should go to college immediately after you graduate from high school um and that maybe is a more of an expectation, but I think the value for being well educated mm. um, is definitely there for both of us as parents. And as they've gotten older, now one has graduated and has chosen to take a year off to work instead. Um, that has been something that I've had to wrestle with and mm -hmm. just kind of let go of that that might not be his path mm -hmm. um, to pursue. My, my partner has a PhD. Um, so that might not be his path. He might choose something different. He might choose, you know, a trade that he becomes really good in. And so I think that's part of as they get older, realizing that who they are and what they choose might be really different than yeah. some of these values that I wasn't even aware of until I saw that they weren't going that going that way. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we really, you know, and I think values also just depend on your kids' personalities mm -hmm. and what they're strong in. Um, so I think we've always appreciated our daughter and her ability to make other people feel comfortable, to pe treat people the same, whether they're wealthy or not, um, to be kind to be a good friend, to be loyal. Um, and she's really good at that. Um, 
And then with our son, I would say his, you know, his strengths are he, he's also a very kind person. So I think kindness is a pretty mm. big value for us. Mm -hmm. um, and as they grow older, I think we're realizing um, that we both have a, a very strong growth mindset. Um, we always are trying to learn and trying to grow in certain areas. And I think when we see our kids not having that as much, um, hmm. that is something where I don't know, we're still working on that, like trying to push and help them be persistent and persevere and not give up when something is really hard. Mm -hmm. um, Do you think yeah. that's um, a generational aspect. Yeah. I, I don't know. So I think as my kids get older, I feel, I feel the age gap getting so, you know, yeah. just the, 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 the experiences we have as I guess I'm a gen, gen X because kind of late gen X, definitely uh -huh. not a millennial. Um, uh -huh. And I'm like, wow, what, this is the generation gap that was so live. When, yeah. when you know when you think of our parents, my parents was a boomer, was a baby boomer, right? And so yeah. now experiencing it as a parent, it's a little, you know, a little shocking, but it's something mm -hmm. to grow into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to understand their generation, mm -hmm. and I think we really worry that their generation, you know, especially during and after COVID, um, have kind of forgotten how to relate to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's still something that we talk about, you know, put your phone down, call your friend, go for a walk, um, be face to face. But it feels like that encouragement is harder and harder now mm -hmm. um, because that's not what their friends are doing. Um, yeah. They're all, you know, on WhatsApp and TikTok and so yeah, it's it's hard being a young person now. I think. Yeah, yeah even the definition of friend. Um, I have mm -hmm. nephew who's you know uh, a high schooler and and like or it didn't have to be middle school and high school. A definition of friend is not the same as what I would say a friend would be. Right, a friend yeah. is like some oh my classmate or I met or like somebody I met at dance class and we kind of hang out and we. I don't know, decide to go to coffee or, you know, and now it's like, oh, my friend, I have a friend. Yeah. Like we, we game. Um, we, we're all uh -huh. this game. And like, oh, have you ever met? Oh, no, we never met. But we just meet. And because we, we're, I guess it's like right. online gaming and they just right. meet in the game room. Yes. And I was like, oh, okay. Yes. I, guess, I guess that's a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 That's how it is. So, yeah. Jody, you mentioned already some of the places that you've lived. Um, you came back to the East Bay for the third time, hopefully final time, mm -hmm. Denver, mm -hmm. Costa Rica. Um, and my understanding is that both you and your partner were kind of pursuing different vocational callings that took you to different places. Um, could you tell us briefly about that journey and mm -hmm. sort of like similar to, you know, was that something you had discussed beforehand? Did it just mm -hmm. happen organically? And mm -hmm. how did you do that with children in the mix? Um, yeah. What were sort of the challenges with that? And what were the things that were encouraging um, mm -hmm. as you went on that journey? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think both of us have a pretty strong bent towards outward um, 
vocational ministry. Um, so wanting our lives to count and mm. we've, we've done that a little bit differently. So I think what initially drew us um, to each other, one of the things was that we really did both um, had learned a lot about, about living among the poor and wanted to do that. Um, and, you know, I think vocation is something that you discern throughout your whole life. So I think just as an individual, my own understanding and discernment of my vocation has changed over the last 25 years. Um, and so has my partners. Um, so I think that is part of the um, the beauty and also the challenge as, as individuals trying to figure out our vocations and then how do we bring those together? Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of joked, but this is really how it has been, is that we've kind of taken turns. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we first moved to the East Bay, it was really for both of us. Um, we moved to Boston for my partner's grad school. We moved to Costa Rica for me because it was my turn because I'd followed him for seven years to Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved back to the East Bay because we both wanted to be here. We moved to Denver for his job. Um, and now we're both back in the East Bay because we both want to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, so there have been these periods of, you know, for for him, he knew when he met me, I'd already lived in, in Bogota in Colombia for a year and a half before we got married. And my vision was to just go right back to Latin America after I finished grad school. So he knew that about me. Um, he actually came with me to Venezuela. We spent a semester there right after we got married. Um, knew that that was really important to me and was willing to just pick up and move to Costa Rica for my sake um, to pursue what I felt like God was drawing me into. Um, so yeah, it's. I think the challenges and times where I've wondered, like, why can't we find a place where both of us feel like we're thriving in our Mm, vocation? Um, And that has been a challenge. Um, I think it's happening more now. And I think for me, it's also realizing vocation is not just my outward calling. Um, You know, vocation includes my family. Um, Like, my family is part of my vocation. And there have been times when family has needed to take priority over vacation, uh, over vacation, over vocation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think it's partly like trying to find the dream job. Like you never really find the dream job. There's always something wrong with every job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of the same spot with how do we find the sweet spot where everybody is thriving in their own vocation. And I guess I'm realizing now, like maybe that's not, um, that's kind of impossible to find. Um, maybe that's an unrealistic expectation. Um, and maybe not. Um, and I say maybe not because I think now my understanding of vocation, used it used to be very specific. Like I need to go to Latin America. I need to work with children who are living on the streets. Um, now I've kind of let go of some of those geographic um, priorities and see vocation more as, you know, there are things that are core to my own vocation, um, but they don't have to play out necessarily in the way that I thought they did in my head before when I was like 23. Um, so in that way, I feel like as our, our understanding and definition of vocation broadened, then it actually becomes a little easier. Um, 
to have our vocations align. But that's, it's just been a, it's been a long journey and it hasn't always been easy. And mm -hmm. sometimes there's been resentment because one person is following the other person and then they don't like it there. Uh. Um, so then we have to leave and try to figure it out somewhere else. Um, so it's been, yeah, it hasn't been easy, but I think, you know, I've been pushed to to be in places where I would not have chosen to go. And so has my partner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then kids in the mix, they were pretty young when we made some of these bigger decisions, like moving to Costa Rica, um, moving back here. I would say the time, the, the decision that we involved them in the most was when we were deciding whether or not to move back to the East Bay after being in Denver for three years. They were nine and 11 at that time. Um, and I think one thing that we realized, vocation is important, but also spiritual community is really important. And we did not have that in Denver. Um, and our kids didn't really have it either. And so one of our like major discussions about coming back was really where's our community gonna be? Um, and that's actually what drew our kids back because they had a really great experience um, of community with friends uh, the first time we lived in the East Bay. And when we presented, like our son did not wanna move here. He wanted to finish his middle school years uh, in Denver. But when we said, well, you know, when you're 18, which he is now, um, who who do you want to be your friends? Who's going to be around you? Um, and the kids he identified were the kids who are here. Um, and he's still really good friends with them. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that's just another piece. It doesn't really fit into the vocation. But I think we've realized that these bigger life decisions also have to do more with community mm -hmm. um, and not just vocation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, from, from the outside, it always looked like you were taking turns. <laughs> so I was like, oh, now it's her turn. We were. <laughs> I kind of thought you you probably mentioned that. I feel like we had a, a conversation of like, oh, this is kind of how our balance is, is yeah, opportunities probably. and kind of, t you know, taking turns and pursuing yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Jody is probably one of the first persons, just a little tidbit, that I met. Um, when I moved to Oakland, gosh, mm -hmm. in the late nineties, yeah. we were oh, part yeah, of the wow. same, uh, faith community. Yes. Yep. <laughs> um, I went to her apartment. Um, they didn't have any kids, just cats. Um, <laughs> right. We still have cats. Yeah. And so, um, you know, former neighbors. And when they came back the second time, yes. they were also former neighbors of Sarah yes. and I. So, yeah. um, yeah. so, you know, we were part of the same faith community for so long and, yeah. um, and, you know, we, you're talking more about vocation. And recently you shared with us that you're kind of digging into a season of contemplation, right, as mm -hmm. part of your faith mm -hmm. practice. Yeah. And so can you tell us more about this? And then how was that faith practice contemplation, you know, connected to your vocation and your uh -huh. inner life with God? Yeah. Um, so I was raised in a very conservative fundamentalist home and was told that Catholics are all bad and going to hell. Um, and so I didn't have um, a concept of the very, you know, long-standing concept that Catholics um, 
uphold too of, of this balance between contemplation and action and mm -hmm. that the two kind of are circular and feed each other. So it wasn't until we moved to Oakland, um, Cheryl, the first time, mm -hmm. and we led a retreat for our church. And that was my first time to read on contemplation and action. That was my first time to, to even discover the term. Um, and I think ever since then, it's been something that I've been trying to figure out how to balance um, because as a kind of my natural tendency is to be more active. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I really, I think at, especially when we had kids, I realized that the main way that I connect with God is through extended solitude and silence, which I did not have when we had little yeah. kids. Yeah. Um, and that's when I realized like, I can try all of these other things and it's just not the same, um, that I really need more more space. And so um, the, the other thing that's kind of been key for me is after I left South America, before I got married, um, the, the phrase that came back to me was, in Christ's love compels us. And I had this period through grad school of realizing, you know, there's a lot of other things that compel me um, that I want to like be helpful and make a difference in the world and had this time of like having my motives purified really and this desire to have everything come out of a place of love um, is still in me and still feels like like, I think I'm getting closer, but it's taken a really long time. Mm. Um, and so that's where the contemplation comes in, because I feel like that is where when I'm able to see how much I've received from God, then it just kind of overflows. Um, and that hasn't always been true for me. I have had periods. I'm a social worker. And so and I've been doing this for 20 some years. And there have been periods when I've really loved it. And then there have also been periods where I'm just really tired of people needing something from me. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it's been like, mm, I have to grunt in order to give it, um, which is not how I want to live. And so I think as I've been kind of making more space for contemplation, um, those shifts are starting to happen where I really do feel like what I'm doing is not because I feel like I should um, or because, uh, yeah, for whatever other reason, it really does feel more like I have a lot of joy in what I do um, and it feels very energizing to me and life-giving and Part of that might just be because I'm figuring out where I should be. <laughs> um, but I think part of it is because there is space in my life right now to, to be still, um, to practice silence and solitude on a regular basis. And um, the most recent thing was two and a half weeks ago. So the first Sunday of Advent, I, um, I've been going to this Benedictine monastery um, here in the East Bay and just got received as an oblate um, almost three weeks ago, which means I'm kind of committing to their rule of life. Oh, um, wow. they're a, yeah, they're a contemplative order of Benedictines. And so it's been really wonderful to have all of these practices that I've kind of been trying to do on my own, um, to be able to do that in a community of people who are mostly much older than me. Um, and that's what they do. They, you know, you come into, 
the service and everybody sits quietly. And after the homily, everybody sits quietly to reflect on it. Um, they're there every morning at 8 a.m. and every evening at 5 p.m. to pray through the liturgy, to sing the liturgy. Um, so that's been really grounding for me, um, grounding to have a place to go. Um, I spend most of my weekly retreats there. Um, How often do I, you get to go visit? I'm there every Sunday morning for Mass. Um, and then I'm usually there Saturday evenings and probably two other evenings for Vespers. Mm. Um, and I see one of the fathers there for spiritual direction. So, oh, wow. yeah, a lot, three or four times a week. So um, is it the Bedic, are they part of a cat of a, the Catholic kind of community? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I grew up Catholic myself here in the States. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm a two on the Enneagram. And I think uh -huh. I feel like I mentioned this on the, on the podcast before, but um, in order, I think what, when, when twos are like the givers. So yeah. I think my, my yep. cultural roots, like my familial roots, you know, like mm -hmm. they kind of like have formed that side of me of like being, I'm a social worker myself too. Uh -huh. So when you say the word solitude, it's, it's, it's sort of like, I never, people are like, Oh, you know, she's like kind of extroverted. She talks a lot. She's friendly. I uh -huh. think my personality doesn't seem uh -huh. like, Oh, I like quietness uh -huh. or I need, but you're right. Like when you said, Oh, I don't get that when you're, when you have young kids. And so no. I really realized I do crave that. <laughs> Even if it's solitude in my car for like five yes. minutes that uh -huh. I could just be quiet, yeah. no radio, no nothing, and just sit yeah. there because that's sometimes the only time you have by yourself, you know? Yeah. Especially yeah. these days. So yeah. So, yeah. And then the whole Catholic thing, I'm thinking there is um, something in me that also craves even the quietness and the um, solemnness of a Catholic mm -hmm. church and sanctuary, mm -hmm. there's yeah. a sacredness to it that I really miss yeah. being part yes. of really um, yeah. traditions that are very, very different. Um, right. Including the church yeah. part that I am now, you know, not that it's yeah. different as it means bad. It's just different. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So now I do both. <laughs> I have my Catholic um, service and then I go to my other service. And so how did you, um, you, did you have to go through uh, a certain kind of process to be officially part of the community? It was more, um, so when I first started, there's one of the monks is in charge of all the oblates and I met with him, went over their rule of life um, and then spent a year, I shared my spiritual autobiography with mm -hmm. them and then just spent a year being with the community and discerning whether or not this is where I would want to um, kind of commit more to. Um, so that year turned into three because of COVID. Um, but I think, so there wasn't really a very rigorous process. It was more just saying, yes, this is the rule of life that you all form your community around that I also want to form my life around, even though it will look different because a monk. I'm not a nun. I have mm -hmm. a family, um, and I'm very active outwardly. Um, but the same values for prayer, for you know, discipline and simplicity, um, for silence and solitude, and also for figuring out how my vocation fits as a reflection of mm -hmm. 
who God is and what God is doing in the world. Um, those are all, that's their rule of life. Mm -hmm. And that feels like, well, that's my rule of life. So I'll just do yeah. it with you. <laughs> and so um, how now, how do you, do you see your vocation differently? What was being the biggest shift? Because before you were saying, oh, you're super yeah. active and you're very yeah. geographic specific. Now it's that's changed. Yeah. So what do you see as the biggest shift? I think the biggest shift, I think when I was young and idealistic, and I'm a one on the Enneagram, mm -hmm. um, I thought of my vocation being more what I was doing for God. Um, so I was going to save all the children on the streets of Latin America, or, you know, I worked for CPS for a while. Um, it was more about what I was doing. And I think as I've grown older, I've realized that my vocation is really more about who I am mm -hmm. and how what I do flows out of who I am. Um, and that in order for me to, to love well, um, I need a lot of time with God <laughs> um, mm. because I can do these things. I mean, it's like first Corinthians 13. If you do all these things, if you give all that you have to the poor, but have not love, you are nothing. Mm -hmm. And I realized that sometimes, you know, I saw my vocation is what I was doing, but it wasn't necessarily driven by love. Um, so I think that's been the biggest shift. And one of the images I've loved is, um, the icon that Rublev has of the Trinity. Um, and I read a book called The Divine Dance and just this idea of participating in the divine dance that already exists between mm -hmm. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the invitation to us. Um, and that is kind of like my contemplation. Like I'm realizing that I'm always part of this divine dance, even if I don't feel it. Um, and then I'm seeing kind of like my action as bringing other people into the divine dance, mm -hmm. um, whether that's just reflecting compassion or kindness um, towards someone who has had a really hard life. Um, yeah. So I think that's been the biggest difference. It's less about what I do. It's more about how I do it and who I am when I'm doing it. Wow. Thank you. Jody. do you have some kind of practices that you think parents with young kids um, mm. do or try to fit in. I mean, I know like yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes my, my husband will take both of the kids to school. Usually we split up and I'll have like 15 yes. minutes in the yep. house by myself and I just yep. savor it. Yes. <laughs> and I'll do some kind of like meditation or journaling. And yeah. yeah so I'm just wondering like, Oh, if you know, what would you say to mm -hmm. your younger self or what practice would you mm -hmm. tell your younger self? Like when there's not a lot of space and time for extended solitude and silence, yeah. what is something that's, yeah, that might be more doable? Um, well, we worked it out in our marriage where I did get that every Saturday for four hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And it wasn't always my partner who did it. Sometimes mm -hmm. it was other friends who came over to babysit. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when our kids were little, I realized, because I would try to do like the Brother Lawrence thing and practice the presence of God while I'm washing dishes. And it really <laughs> didn't do it for me. Um, <laughs> so it, I just realized I needed it and I needed to create space for that. Mm -hmm. um, so I did. Whether yeah. that, and a lot of times it was friends or kind of exchanging, like I'll take yeah. care of your kids for this time and then you'll, you'll take care of mine. Um, 
Yeah, I think that would be my encouragement. I, it's hard when your kids are little to really find that space, especially if you're also working and your partner is also working. Um, but it was so important to my own well-being and sanity to have that space. Yeah. Um, so we worked pretty hard for me to have it. Yeah, that, that's great. I can't, it's, see, yeah, COVID makes all that so complicated. You know, yes. even um, play yeah. dates. Um, yeah, that's you know. true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are we ready to close out tonight with some of our fun uh, questions? <laughs> yeah. Sure. The yeah. ones I'm not prepped for. Oh, that's fine. Even better. <laughs> oh, yeah. We like, we like um, you know, answers that are off the cuff. Okay. So our first question is, what would you say your Asian mom superpower is? <laughs> My Asian mom superpower. I can balance a lot of things at the same time. Ooh. <laughs> I'm like imagining you like, like running a meeting while cutting fruit while like... <laughs> Well, know. last night I listened to your podcast while I was making dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually multitasking, which isn't always a great thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having a lot on my plate and being mm -hmm. able to keep up with it all. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I could see your super mom, your, your superpower of, of being able to coordinate it so you could have four hours on a Saturday morning yes. to yourself. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is that, something to be amazed by. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, and then another question we want to ask you is um, you've mostly worked um, in Oakland and we're curious if there is a story about um, working in Oakland um, that really cemented it as a special place for, for you. Um, hmm. So the times that I've worked in Oakland have been with very different populations. Um, the first time I was here, I was with Alameda County Child Welfare. I was a child welfare worker. Um, and now for the last you know, six, seven years, it's been more with refugees and immigrants in Oakland. Um, but I think the commonality in that is um, the diversity in Oakland, which is something that really draws me back. Mm -hmm. um, I love the diversity of Oakland. And I think that's partly because I have grown up in different cultural settings. And that's actually where I feel most comfortable. Um, so that is that has always drawn me back to Oakland, I think, especially as a woman, um, because as a woman of color, it's not that odd in Oakland to be in leadership, mm. um, but that is not true in other places. So yeah. that's also what draws me back. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. I, I kind of take that for granted because I've never really worked outside of mm. Oakland, Alameda County, you know, to see uh -huh. that women yeah. of color because I'm like, oh, that is so, to me, so commonplace. Some of the, like, yes, you know, pillars is. of the community are right. these, like, awesome, you know, women of color. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. In other places, that's not true. Like, white men, they're in charge. Mm -hmm. So that's, that is why I love being here. Um, 
And, you know, I think Oakland, as much as it's changing and there's gentrification, there's still a lot of diversity, not just race and ethnicity, but also class. Mm-hmm. Um, and there always has been. And I think that is also what draws me because I think for my own discipleship, I need to be around people who um, have less than me, um, who have had a harder life than me. And even during COVID, it was a gift for me to be around refugees because when I asked them how they were doing, they're like, oh yeah, this isn't so bad. We get to be with our family all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because they've left a war-torn country and yeah. have had gone, you know, they've gone through much harder things mm-hmm. um, than COVID. Uh, so it's just very grounding for me to be around people who have less than I have and who are still really gracious and kind and generous. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have I've experienced that in Oakland. Um, I think that's part of what I keep coming back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Oakland is so beautiful in so it many is. ways. Yeah, yeah it the is. Diversity, yeah, it's really true. Um, I have a, a question I'm going to throw in there. Um, sure. So knowing that you don't eat out a lot, I'm wondering, like, what is your favorite <laughs> restaurant or place to eat? Because I feel like, like you, since it's, a, you know, something you do on a special occasion that you're probably... Yes. I'm pretty particular. So what are some of those favorite spots in the East Bay? It used to be Champa Gardens mm-hmm. um, until that got discovered. Now we mostly go to Vientiane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It's a, so it's so far from your home home, but um, maybe well, when you're out and working, huh? Or even then? It's worth it. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of my. That's my preference. Places. Others prefer Taqueria San Jose. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a big one too. Well, I don't. You might be happy to know that, um, or maybe this is the sign of the times that across the street from Vientiane uh-huh. is this, you know, fancy little donut shop. Um, oh, you know that you know sells these tiny little donuts for a good <laughs> two bucks. So. You know, it is a sign of the times. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it does happen. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe I'll check out the donut. Yeah. Yeah. So when it first opened up, they were like super long line. Yeah, I think they opened up in Uptown. uh, And then I think uh, they closed and then they reopened um, around either across the street or kitty corner to it. Mm -hmm. I drove by it the other day visiting my friend in that neighborhood. Yep. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So you can have uh, your noodles and then go get yes. your donuts. There you go. Okay. That sounds like a great combo. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us tonight and being so You're patient welcome. with us as we sure. figured out all this tech stuff. Yeah. It was no a great problem. conversation, Jody. Yeah. 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 For having me. We appreciate all the thoughts on vocation and, and action and just um, are soaking in all your wisdom. Thank mm-hmm. you. Awesome. Thank you. Take care and don't forget to call your mom.